Rod is not here. You probably have figured that out by now since I'm standing up here. Uh, my name is Kevin Palau, and I am uh, visiting from Portland, Oregon. And, uh, oh, right, yes, someone from the Pacific Northwest or just who likes the Portlandia TV show or something. <laughs> but um, if you know anything about Portland at all, you know it is kind of like the polar opposite of West Michigan. If West Michigan is a place where you could talk to someone about, that might even be strange about where you go to church, you are not going to have that conversation in Portland, Oregon without getting a lot of strange looks like, why would you think I would ever go to church? Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, is the least churched part of the country, and uh, it is a place that uh, our, our uh, leaders would call proudly progressive. Other people might say liberal, but uh, the uh, name of choice in Portland is proudly progressive. And I, I mentioned a little bit about, before we uh, stand uh, for the reading of God's Word in this series on meals with Jesus, I'm going to talk a fair bit about uh, my home city of Portland, Oregon, and some of the crazy, quirky people there. Because as you see when we go through the passage, you'll see it very much relates to how do we get into relationship that are life-giving and life-saving with people that are very, very different from us. Even at times when other people might say, how dare you uh, be friends or be in an intimate relationship with someone who's so diametrically opposed to what we think. Uh, so a little bit of background about Portland, Oregon. As I mentioned, a very, very unchurched part of the country. Uh, my mom is a native Oregonian. My dad is from Argentina. The reason that I'm, that I'm here in town that Pastor Rod asked me to share, and the, and the reason you got that little, that little card, City Fest with Luis Palau, that's my dad, Andrew Palau, that's my brother. Um, growing up as a kid, if people knew anything about the, kind of this Luis Palau, the Billy Graham of Latin America is what my dad was known uh, as. Some of you younger people are like, who is Billy Graham? <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, it's sad, but things change so quickly. Some of the old-timers are like, wow, Billy Graham. Nobody shared the good news with more people around the world than Billy Graham, and he just died not that many months ago. And my dad is 83, and just six months ago was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So do pray for him. Uh, the festival, City Fest, right here at Anabawim. Did I say that right? Yes, I think that's the first time I've said it right. I've been practicing uh, September 8 and 9. Um, so this message kind of will relate to what do we do to put ourselves into these kinds of relationships where we can be used by God to see people come to faith in Christ. But my dad's from Argentina. He's an evangelist. We ended up in Portland, Oregon, simply because my mom is a native Oregonian. And uh, as we traveled around the world, it made sense to be based where my mom was from. Uh, but people would sometimes say, why are you based in Portland, Oregon, of all places? It's clearly not the Bible Belt. People in Oregon know we don't live in the Bible Belt. Um, but joking aside, you know, it's been a place that's been difficult for Jesus followers to live out their faith. It's a place that squeezes you into its mold and makes you at times feel you should really be ashamed of yourself if you believe these things that these Christians believe. Uh, Portland is a quirky place. Uh, we have the largest naked bike ride in the world. Did you know that? 10,000 people, we break the record every year. I say we, Portlanders, I'm not a participant. <laughs> uh, but 10,000 people ride their bikes naked through the streets of Portland every year. So uh, take that, West Michigan. I dare you to try to beat our record uh, for the largest naked bike ride in the world. But uh, I say that to say, you know, Portland is a place that values freedom as they, as they would see it. People come from other parts of the country, probably from West Michigan, from the Bible Belt, to say, 
I'm tired of being told what to do. I'm tired to be restricted. I'm going to live in a place where you can do anything you want. We have a very large LGBTQ community. The mayor of Portland, uh, a couple mayors ago, when we were beginning this process of, of planning for our first festival there, uh, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city, a guy named Sam Adams. And, and after we get into the passage, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sam, my friendship with Sam, and how this very unlikely couple, this unlikely duo of a uh, head of an evangelistic organization and the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city not only became friends, but began to find ways to work together to make Portland a better place, and as a result, the gospel went forward. So I'm going to kind of tantalize you with that uh, as we get into the passage. So um, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, would you? And we're going to be looking at Matthew 9, 9 to 13 in this series of, on um, Meals with Jesus. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and have a seat while I grab a sip of water. Well, in this, in this passage, uh, you've been uh, in this series of meals with Jesus. In this passage, we see the tension that can come when we hang out with people that some people would say we're not supposed to hang out with. Let's first look at uh, the calling of Matthew himself as Jesus did that. As Jesus went on from there, it says, and this is, if you remember, just before Jesus is in his hometown and he's healed the paralyzed man. So as Jesus goes on from that experience... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And I know that, uh, that Pastor Rod has already explained some of these uh, things. I listened online to a couple of the messages. So when you think about a tax collector, don't think uh, a profession. Don't think a guy that might have his MBA or a CPA, and you might not appreciate being taxed, but, but he's an honorable person. Think a political kind of position. Rod might have, uh, I think Rod mentioned that a few weeks ago. Think someone that is in cahoots with the evil empire of the day. Everything uh, that the Jews wanted to uh, distance them, themselves from at that time was related to Rome being the oppressor. So when Jesus is walking by and he sees this guy, Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth, the, the, the listeners of the day, the readers of this passage, would not be thinking, sharp professional. They would be thinking someone who has sold himself out, someone who for the love of money uh, is in cahoots with Rome. They've got the Roman soldiers there to enforce what they're going to do. And basically the way that the system worked was you had your quota of taxes to collect, but anything you collected above and beyond that was yours to keep. And so it became a very, very corrupt system in cahoots with Rome 
supported by kind of Roman soldiers as muscles. So as Jesus walks by and sees this person, the fact that Jesus would stop and talk to someone at the tax collector's booth would be a shock for a rabbi to do that. Uh, and so you really see a, a very, very unlikely situation. And Jesus is always calling uh, the un... Oops, did I go past it? There we go. Sorry. Jesus is always calling the unlikely. What's unlikely about the situation, one is that Jesus would stop and talk to a tax collector. That right there is saying something to the people watching, including the other disciples. Uh, and not only does he stop and talk, he says very directly, follow me, leave this life and follow me. Just as shocking, perhaps more shocking, uh, even perhaps more unlikely, is the fact that Matthew takes that step and does it. Imagine what he was giving up at that point, giving up a very, very lucrative lifestyle. Uh, you remember, if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, that was a similar situation, uh, and someone who was giving up a lot to follow Jesus. So Jesus is always calling the unlikely. Uh, so what does the unlikely follower of Jesus uh, do? Well, the first thing he does, uh, you see, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The love of Jesus is always shown in relationship. The first thing Matthew does, and you see this in the story of Zacchaeus and other places as well, when Matthew has this radical encounter with Jesus Christ, leaves his old life and chooses to follow him, the first natural thing he does is open up his home and have a party. Opens up his home for the people that he was already in relationship with. He wasn't in relationship with good, observant Jews at that point. The people that he was in relationship were people that were just like him. And therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that his house is full of tax collectors and sinners. And when you talk about sinners, you're just talking about someone that, to the observant Jew, to the Pharisees that you can see are ticked off by this, it's someone who's not uh, keeping kosher, who's someone who's not observing the religious rituals of the day. And so therefore, again, it is shocking that Jesus is in relationship with those people. Uh, but the love of Jesus is shown uh, in Matthew's life in the fact that the first thing he wants to do is invite his friends, his family, his co-workers to meet Jesus Christ and experience what he's just begun to experience. So the positive, the love of Jesus is shown in these kinds of radical relationships. But the other side of it is, not everyone is going to applaud these kinds of relationships. And we see, of course, the Pharisees absolutely were not okay with that kind of relationship. Uh, you can see what their, uh, what their reaction was. They were asked this very simple question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Was that really a question? Probably not. Uh, they weren't really looking for an answer. At that point, they were basically making a clear statement to the disciples, and I don't know if you noticed this, they're not actually talking to Jesus at that point. They're not in the house with the, in this situation. They're actually talking to the disciples, basically saying, how in the world are you hanging out with a so-called teacher, a so-called rabbi who clearly doesn't know what he's doing because he is uh, breaking all kinds of rules and having table fellowship with these people who are not doing the right kinds of things. Uh, and I know Pastor Rod explained this. When you're talking about having a meal, it's not just a casual, let's go eat together, let's go stop by McDonald's or something like that. You're talking about, I'm making a conscious choice to say, we are in relationship. I love you. I want to have relationship with you. 
So for Jesus to do that was a very, very radical thing. For Jesus to say, uh, I have table fellowship with you. And again, some of the people, in this case the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, absolutely did not like that. So what is Jesus' answer to that question? Why, why, why? Why does your teacher hang out with uh, tax collectors and sinners? Why is he eating meals with them? Uh, Jesus' answer is, is fairly simple. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The interesting thing about the way that Jesus uh, answers this first part is uh, who is healthy and who is sick uh, in this scenario? Certainly on the face of it, uh, the tax collectors and sinners are sick and in need of a Savior. Certainly the fact that they have chosen to live their lives in a way that exploits people, that takes advantage, uh, they are sick. They are sick in their souls and they absolutely need an encounter with Jesus Christ. So certainly that's part of it. But is Jesus saying uh, that the Pharisees, is he kind of going along with the Pharisees and saying, oh, don't, don't judge me. I'm just doing it to, to, because I'm trying to be a doctor in a sense, a spiritual doctor to these people. Another key point Jesus is clearly making is uh, the people that recognize that they're sick are the, ones who, are the only ones who have a chance to be healed. And those of you that are, uh, that are hanging around on the outside and judging this situation clearly are showing by your attitude that you are just as unhealthy and in need uh, of a savior and a spiritual doctor as, uh, as these tax collectors and sinners. But now we really get to the heart of what Jesus is saying, that really the, the, the clear command uh, in response to this challenge that the Pharisees give him of why. Why are you hanging around with people you should not be hanging around with? Go and learn what this means. He's actually talking at this point to the disciples. He's not really directly answering the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't have the guts and courage to talk to Jesus himself. They're talking to the, to, and complaining to the disciples and, and perhaps trying to say, you shouldn't be following that rabbi, you should be following us. Jesus hears uh, the conversation and at this point is saying to his own intimate group of disciples, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6 6 at, this, at this point in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the entire verse that Jesus is quoting says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy is a state of the heart. And the primary thing that Jesus is calling on his disciples uh, in this situation of tension and arguing around who are you hanging around with, are you tainting yourself, are you kind of soiling yourself by being in the same room with uh, these tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees would say, yes, you should not uh, be in any kind of fellowship with them. Jesus goes right back to the Old Testament, goes right back to the heart of God his Father and says, you're missing the entire point. I don't desire religious activity uh, I desire mercy in your relationships with people. The only way that people are going to encounter Christ through us as his followers today is for us to be the ones that are crossing those lines that people may say, be careful, don't taint yourself. But what Jesus clearly desires from us as his followers today is mercy, mercy, mercy. Um, the verse says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Uh, the passage isn't saying that, Jesus, that, that, that in the Old Testament 
uh, sacrifices and burnt offerings weren't required, because clearly they were. The Hebrew idiom is basically saying far more than I desire offerings and burnt sacrifices, which I do, or in the Old Testament certainly God did. He's saying in comparison, what I desire is mercy in your relationships far more than that. And mercy really is a state of the heart that's required of us if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus. So back to it, with all this in mind, back to this crazy Portland story, uh, again, and think of very different context uh, uh, than you've got here. We found ourselves as a, as a group of Jesus followers about 10 years ago. Uh, we had about 100 pastors together in a room, and we were praying for our city, frankly, with a, with a real sense of discouragement. Because we recognized that as a, as a Christian community in Portland, we'd allowed ourselves to kind of be painted into a corner, and uh, we, we'd become known almost entirely for what we were against rather than what we were for. Because of the way the media you know, tends to portray people that are trying to follow Jesus, we don't mean to, but, but at times because of political kinds of climate, we see it today, let's face it, all over the place. Portland had kind of painted the church into a corner of, we know what you people are like, uh, you're basically about two things. I didn't have to probably mention what they are. You hate this group, of which our mayor and our school superintendent, Portland, is a very, very strong and active and a, a, an LGBTQ community that is not just uh, proud of who they are, but very much involved in the leadership of the city. The mayor, the school superintendent, the head of the Portland School Foundation. It's a community that is, that is very strong and active. And the Christian community in, in the start of this conversation felt very, very much marginalized. Out of prayer, God gave us a very, very simple idea. Should we be the ones, and again, think of this passage, should we be the ones to cross some of these lines and put ourselves into a situation of trying to build relationship, trying to have this kind of intimate, meal-like relationship with people different from us? So the pastors kind of chickened out and kind of deputized my dad and I and said, you guys go talk to the mayor. Um, and the idea was this, though. We, we were going to have one of these festivals like we're having in Anabuin Park, September 8 and 9. We've done that for years and years and years where you bring in, in this case, uh, like Lecrae and Mandisa and Toby Mac. The idea was we're going to go to our waterfront park, our Anabuin Park, right along the river in Portland and have a public proclamation of the good news, invite the whole community to come and, and, and rejoice with us, great music, an action sports area, a family fun zone, a food court, corporate sponsors, and share the good news. But in Portland, we knew that that wouldn't be enough, that if we only did that, we might end up with a, with a gathering that would be 99% already Jesus followers and nothing that had broken through this hard veneer and the incredible mistrust between the general community of non-Jesus followers in Portland and the small percentage of people that were trying faithfully to live out the gospel and bear witness to Jesus in a place like Portland, Oregon. So we had this, this idea that it probably will seem pretty simple to you, but at the time it felt like a pretty big risk. And again, the idea was we knew that in sharing the gospel in Portland, we weren't starting on common ground. Here you have probably a little bit more common ground. A much higher percentage of people in West Michigan at least grew up something, right? They grew up Catholic, CRC, RCA, uh, they went to Christian schools, they may have drifted in some ways, but that's a fairly, it's a, it's a possibility. In Portland, you're talking about not common ground, but a 10-foot hole of misunderstanding that's been dug year after year after year. I know you people, you are fundamentalists, you hate the LGBTQ community, 
all you care about is being homophobic and anti-abortion. That's your message. No thank you. That's not what proudly progressive Portland is all about. So that was the environment of which the pastors, thank you very much, said, you guys go talk to the mayor and uh, let's see if we can somehow build a relationship. So we did something simple. We went to the mayor, having talked to the pastors and said, what if in addition to wanting to share the good news, we, 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 we looked at this as an opportunity to demonstrate the good news, to come to the city and say, if we could mobilize 15,000 Jesus followers in this six-month period leading up to the festival, what could we do to love and serve Portland and make a difference? No strings attached. We're not talking about, we're going to have this festival to share Jesus with the community, but in, the, in our serving, it is, it is genuine, no strings attached. What could we do that would make a difference? And again, this is an anticipation of what became this, this wonderful, beautiful sunny day, which you cannot take for granted in Portland, Oregon, one of the rainiest places as well. Um, but the idea was, what could we do together? So that's Sam Adams, uh, mayor of Portland, Oregon at the time, first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city, grew up kind of Episcopalian, but as he came out uh, at the University of Oregon, left all that behind, proudly progressive mayor of Portland, Oregon. So you can kind of imagine the first meeting sitting down with Sam. Sam was wondering, what in the world are these Christians wanting to meet with me about? His, his uh, relationships in the past with Jesus' followers had not necessarily been very positive, let's say. Um, sadly, the, his encounters with Jesus' followers had not been full of grace and truth. They'd not been full of mercy. They'd basically been condemning and people kind of getting in his face and, and, and aggressively challenging him in different ways. So he was cautious in saying, you know, what do you want? But as mayor, he felt like, well, uh, you know, the, these guys are coming on behalf of a group of churches, so let's see what they want. His attitude was, they want something, let's see what they want. So the conversation began with us saying, uh, Mayor Sam, we are really embarrassed that as a Christian community we're known for what we're against and not what we're for. Uh, Christ commands us to love and serve the city. We use this verse, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. And in Portland, many believers feel like we are in exile, strangers in a strange land. But what's God's message for us in that context? Seek the shalom of that city. Pray for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we went into this meeting having prayed with the pastors and said, what if what God's calling us to do is to be part of the community in visible ways, to love and serve however we can, no strings attached, and see if that would build bridges of trust and build relationship so that when the festival takes place, more people that actually need to hear the good news would be there. That was our early thinking. And Sam, to his credit, didn't show us the door. Sam, to his credit, was kind of taken aback um, and engage with us right away. We said, what kinds of things could we do that would make a difference? And Sam came in as an education mayor, meaning that, that uh, uh, his main priority was how do we improve Portland Public Schools? Um, Portland Public Schools at the time, 10 years ago, was only graduating 52% of the students on time, if you can believe that. I mean, imagine what that means and how kind of languishing the situation was. So Roosevelt High School, I put that, I put that slide up because Roosevelt High School was the first thing he said. It was on a short list of schools to be closed. It had been built in 1922 for 2,000 students, but as the neighborhood had changed uh, over the years, it was down to 400 students left rattling around in this decaying building. No football team, because they'd, they'd condemned the grandstands. It was a situation where if you could get your kid out of Roosevelt, you'd done it, 
And if you were left there, you were kind of like waiting, is this school even going to be here? A very demoralized community. And so Sam said, is there something that the churches can do to help Roosevelt? And partly, as we became friends later, we had the same conversation with Carol Smith, also a very prominent um, LGBTQ leader in Portland who was the school superintendent, also starting off with a lot of mistrust. What are you Christians trying to do? You're going to try to proselytize. And, and when she said that to me, I kind of laughed and said, you don't know our people very well if that's your concern because we couldn't pay most of our people to ever share their faith. So you've got nothing to worry about. Um, <laughs> Which she kind of surprised, you know, her stereotype was every single Christian is walking around with, you know, turn or burn signs and handing out tracts. And I said, frankly, as, as leaders, we would love to see our people more engaged in sharing their faith and more proud and comfortable with who they are. The reality of it is you don't have anything to worry about. But um, the, the, the situation was, into this situation stepped the Church of Jesus Christ. 2,000 people came um, and did an incredible makeover of Roosevelt High School. Uh, the head of uh, the NFL for Nike, Nike is, a, is one of our Fortune 500 com com uh, companies in Portland, got involved because he was involved in one of the churches. Uh, with the help of Nike, they rebuilt the football field, the track, and the grandstands. They mentored every kid. In, this is now, I'm kind of, I'm now telling, uh, this didn't happen on the, the first weekend, obviously, but what happened was the, uh, the God so moved in the hearts, this mercy, I desire mercy, not sacrifice and burnt offerings, God so moved in the heart of this one particular suburban church that, that was kind of leading the way in this makeover of Roosevelt High School that they began showing up without any original plan. Week after week after week, they began showing up at Roosevelt High School asking, how can we serve? What can we do? They began running the clothing closet, head, uh, food pantry, Head Start program, mentoring every kid in the freshman class. Roosevelt, fast forward, they've doubled the number of students to, to over 1,000. Their graduation rate climbed 15 percentage points. And uh, all this, you know, I'm saying it quickly, but you know, it took place over about a five-year period of time. Carol Smith, our superintendent, again, began with this sense of, and by the way, in Portland, it's kind of the opposite. In Portland, it's the community at large that are looking at the Christians and kind of saying to themselves, uh, including Sam Adams, the LGBTQ community, saying to Sam, how dare you have fellowship with these crazy Christians? So, so I kind of, you know, ruminate on that a little bit and say, you know, there's two sides to this coin. Sam took a lot of heat from his community saying, why are you eating and letting them kind of be in relationship with you? So Portland, again, can kind of mess with your mind some. But um, all of this led uh, to what we now call the School Partnership Network. Here comes Carol Smith, Portland Public School Superintendent, observing the change at Roosevelt High School, observing the genuine love and mercy shown by Jesus followers, says to us, please would you work with us? Let's work together and find a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools. So we now have 318 out of 465 schools in Portland and counting that have a formal partnership with an evangelical church. We'll have gatherings where Carol, Superintendent Smith, will bring every principal in Portland Public Schools for a mandatory meeting We'll bring the pastors, we'll sit around tables based on which school is close, you know, to which church, and we'll stand up and say, look, we disagree on all kinds of things, but we love the community, and uh, we're, we're committed to working together to improve the lives of our schools. And we've never hidden the fact that as Jesus followers, our deepest desire is to introduce people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've never had to hide that. Um, it's been a remarkable journey because the trust has been built 
it, it has been absolutely remarkable. And I come back to Sam Adams uh, because you might wonder, you know, what kind of impact would this have on an individual life? Sam, you know, grew up uh, on the Oregon coast. His parents got divorced. Uh, he comes out uh, in high school, but in particular at University of Oregon, gets involved in politics. He's the assistant, kind of chief of staff for a previous mayor, works his way up, becomes a city commissioner. And then right at the time in God's providence when we're having this, this dream of impacting our city and, and seeing more people come to Christ, Sam happens to be the mayor. Um, and so Sam, you know, trust was built. Sam was there at Roosevelt High School. Sam was there, you know, weeding and painting along with other Jesus followers and beginning to see trust built. Um, Sam was there on the stage at that festival that you saw. Um, Sam was the one who came, you know, to say thank you because in his mind it's like, wow, for six months he saw Jesus followers impacting schools, getting involved in the foster care system, uh, helping refugees, putting on free medical and dental clinics. So his heart began to change, but the really radical change came. Well, so, well, so Sam was the one, by the way, who stood on the stage uh, of the festival and said this was the best community service effort in the history of Oregon. We've got to keep this going. So he was the one that kind of challenged the churches to say, surely this can't be a one-hit wonder where, you know, just in anticipation of this big event, you guys are serving, and then it kind of goes right back to where it was before. So I give Sam credit. He remains a very, very good friend. I say to him all the time, Sam, God used you. You were God's mouthpiece at that point to challenge the church to be what we're supposed to be. And he'll kind of like, ha, 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 yeah, okay. He doesn't quite know what to do with me, you know, putting him in the, vo in the, in the role of, God is using you, Sam, in some remarkable ways. Um, but in Sam's personal life, he, he, he makes the, uh, the, you know, the presentation at the festival. That's August of 2008. Um, he was actually mayor-elect at that point. He'd been elected, but he was sworn in January of 2009. And right after he was sworn in, major, major scandal erupts. Um, while he was running for mayor, there'd been rumors of an affair with an intern, and his response was, and I live in Beaverton, so don't vote in Portland's election, so I wasn't fully aware of some of these things, but they were kind of rumblings and rumors, and Sam's response was, that's the worst form of homophobia, and he kind of squashed it. Well, Portland's uh, alternative newspaper called Willamette Week, Portland's regular newspaper is pretty alternative, so imagine Portland's alternative newspaper is very, very alternative. They found this intern who'd moved away and called Sam up and said, guess what, we found this guy, get ready, it's going to be in the front page of the paper, we got you. So you can imagine, and we've seen it played out on the national stage. You see it all the time. Someone's caught doing something they shouldn't do. There's shame, the humiliation. So Sam does what, what, what anybody would do at that point. You know, he has a press conference. He's trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I do in this situation of scandal and humiliation? Uh, and it was remarkable to see what God did uh, in, in, this, in this whole process. Uh, we had this opportunity uh, to begin to build genuine trust uh, with Sam. Uh, there's this press conference. I just did what, you know, by that point we'd been friends with Sam for about a year in the process. And I just texted Sam just to say, Sam, we love you. I can't imagine what you're thinking and feeling. Again, we weren't, we weren't pretending that we were in, in agreement. We weren't absolving him. He'd had to confess, in a sense, to the whole city and the whole world. It was on Time magazine, front page of the paper, day after day. He'd had to confess. So our job at that point was to, was to say, we love you. What, is there anything we can do from you, for you? 
And to my surprise, he immediately texted back and said, please, would your dad come and pray with me? And so uh, the very next day, this, this was Friday press conference, Saturday, dad goes over, and I drove dad over there. I wasn't in the meeting. It was just the two of them, but he went over there, and, uh, um, and the way dad described it to me, and I've talked to Sam about it as well, um, the way the conversation basically went, um, Sam says to dad, Luis, I don't get it. I'm a smart guy. I knew that was wrong. How could I possibly have let myself do that? And dad's response, hopefully like any of us, was, well, Sam, it doesn't matter what I think. Let's just look at what God's word says. You grew up Episcopalian on the Oregon coast. You were confirmed Episcopalian. So dad basically put it in terms of like, well, Sam, you're a Christian. Dad wasn't suggesting that Sam was a fully devoted follower of Jesus. But dad kind of built on Sam's background uh, and said, Sam, it doesn't matter what I think. Let's look at what God's word said. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Uh, all of us have fallen, uh, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the whole time when dad was reading those passages, just in answer to Sam's question, Sam was asking a legitimate question, Luis, how could I have let myself do this? I got caught from something that I did that I knew was wrong. Dad shares the good news with him, and dad says uh, the entire time when dad's sharing that part of the good news, which kind of sounds like bad news, we're all sinners, but we all know those, those of us that have encountered Christ. You can't experience the good news. You can't be in that relationship with Jesus until you've acknowledged the reality of, of sin. Um, and so Sam, you know, the whole time dad's going through that, dad, Sam physically was going like this. That's me, that's me, that's me. Um, and dad prays with Sam. And I wish the end of the story was, and Sam has radically turned to Jesus Christ. He's a Christ follower in every way. I would say, Sam, like so many of your own friends and family, even in a place like West Michigan, he's on that journey. He's absolutely turned around. He loves the evangelical community. He's been on Focus on the Family with me on the radio twice, if you can believe that. The first openly gay guest on Focus on the Family. They got a few letters about that, you might imagine. <laughs> uh, Jim Daly told me. But again, you know, again, we're not, I hope you sense from this, we're not talking about compromising biblical truth. We're talking about putting ourselves into relationship with people that others might say, you are compromising simply by being in relationship. We would say the only way that Sam Adams, humanly speaking, God could have done it some other way, but when Dad came out of that, that meeting with Sam in tears saying, in my 50 years as an evangelist, sharing the good news all around the world to hundreds of thousands of people, I've never had a chance to share the gospel one-on-one -on -one with someone like that at that incredible point of brokenness. Sam would not have crossed the street to attend a church uh, or to hang out with someone that called themselves a Christian, particularly an evangelical Christian. And so as we wrap up this time, uh, in fact, in just a minute, you all got that, that prayer card there. Uh, Bruce, who you know better than I do, and I just love this guy's heart, is going gonna, is gonna to actually walk us through I hope that as you've been hearing this story, maybe God brought someone to your mind. Who are the people in your life uh, that, that, that God's prompting you to pray for? 